0: And let's now take our Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5 together. Continue our worship by looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and if you're visiting or using the blue Bible and the pew pocket in front of you, you'll find that on page 1023. 1 John 5, looking at verses 1 through 5. Let me read for us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our passage today presents us with a unique challenge and an opportunity. What is it? Familiarity. It's both the challenge and the opportunity. You'll notice if you've been in the study that every one of the words that showed up in these five verses have already showed up in prior portions in 1 John. There's not a single new word in these five verses. And that's the challenge. Have you ever noticed how words, repeated over and over again, seem to lose their meaning? I just try to discern the meaning of this grammatically correct sentence. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. Anybody ever heard that sentence before? Till today? It is a real sentence. (laughs) Once you realize that buffalo is a place, and that buffalo is used as a verb, which means to bully and it is a noun, the animal, you could theoretically turn this sentence into something meaningful. But practically, our minds cannot discern the differences due to the repetition. By the time you hear buffalo for the third time, you don't want to hear it anymore, and your mind literally blocks it out. Scientists have been studying this for over 100 years. It's something that most would call Semantic satiation. Semantic satiation. The brain blocks the similar or the familiar out after a while. As evidence of this, one study group presented a sleeping cat with a tone. The cat, obviously, hearing the tone would wake up. But as they continued to play the tone again and again after letting the cat fall asleep again and again, the cat took a little longer each time to wake up until it just kept on sleeping. But when the tone was varied slightly, the cat immediately sprung into action. Semantic satiation. Hearing the same thing over and over and over again, eventually the mind blocks it out. Just as similar tones can be blocked out by the mind, so can similar words. I and mean, if you think about it right now and you listen carefully, you'll hear the, the passing of the cars. But since you've been in here, you haven't heard the passing of the cars. <laughs> it's semantic satiation. If this is true of sounds, it's also true of words. Uh, many of you know that I come from the south. Now, you're probably thinking, it does it get much more south than this. I'm talking about the real south, not the geographical one. You step into any greasy spoon in the state of North Carolina in which I'm from, and the waitress is going to call you one of three things. Honey, sweetie, or cutie. Now, if you're from out of town, that may mean something to you. Like, wow, she really likes me. (laughs) But for those of us who frequent those establishments, it means nothing. Because we've heard it so much. It's semantic satiation. And it even happens in our own families. I mean, how many times do you get off the phone with your wife or your husband and you say, I love you. (laughs) But you might as well just say goodbye. It's lost its meaning many times. The same can be true of familiar hymns or Christmas songs. You just automatically go into autopilot having heard something so many times. And all of this, like, on the surface is not a big deal. But regrettably, semantic satiation can be true of words that are precious to our faith. What we see here in our own scriptures doesn't get a free pass from the tendency of our minds to block out the familiar. Some of you hear things like believe in Jesus or born again or love and commandments and you've heard it so many times, especially over the last few months, it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. When you hear believe in Jesus, that it's easy for some for the mind to simply dis- dismiss it as something as humdrum as brush your teeth. It's lost its special significance. Belief in Jesus being the one thing that actually connects you to all of God's promises for you. Or something like born again. When you hear that, it's easy just to immediately categorize it as, as someone who claims to be a Christian as opposed to a Muslim or an agnostic. Born again. We miss the miracle of the new birth because of the familiarity of, of the phrase. When we hear of God's love or victory over the world, like we've seen in this text, it's possible for it to lose its gravitas, to yawn at this privilege, to overlook the honor, to to sleep through the excitement. Yet John is concerned to communicate familiar truth, indeed, but in fresh ways in this text. You may have heard all those words before in this study, but you haven't heard them this way. Something unique is happening here. Well, it may appear that John is repeating himself, he wants us to enjoy certainty of our spiritual condition and its connected benefits. This is the first time that he is going to mine into the benefits connected with knowing that you are actually one of God's children. He starts off with, and the main focus is the spiritual condition, the root, who we really are, and he's using that familiar terminology of being born again. You see it there in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see it again in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He is going to talk about the person who is born of God at the root expressed through faith in Jesus Christ, which is like the trunk of the tree, if you will. You notice at the very beginning, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. At the end, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Excuse me, I got those mixed up. But both of them are belief in Jesus. So that part is familiar, that part is new, but it's the stuff that he fills it in with that is different. Here's where things get interesting because having established that born-again people believe, he's now going to talk about the benefits that are uniquely associated with that belief. The fruit, if you will. John here is pointing us to the horizontal benefits of the new birth. I mean, obviously, there's a vertical benefit of being born again. That means we're God's child, and that's phenomenal. That's amazing, and he's unpacked that in several ways. But what does it mean for us on the horizontal plane? What does it mean for us in our day-to-day relationships? Not just what should it mean for us, that would be a command. What does it mean for us? As a condition. Something that is true. So for those born-again believers among us today, whose relationship with God may have grown a little stale, a little blase. Our text lists two benefits of the new birth. Two benefits of the new birth. And if you're a note taker, it might be helpful for you to kind of view these benefits as like the fruit of a tree. If I was drawing my notes out today, I would draw a little picture of a tree with its roots. On the bottom, I would put the new birth. (laughs) Above that, I would actually put the trunk of the tree and its branches being belief in Jesus, and then the benefits would be at least two of the predominant fruit growing off of this tree. I want you to get that mental image in your mind because everything that I am saying this morning is connected to what God has done in you through the new birth, expressed in belief in Jesus Christ. There are no benefits apart from that. But since we've covered that in other passages today, I will focus on these benefits particularly. So, what are they? The first, as a born-again believer, you benefit from relational harmony. As a born-again believer, you benefit from relational harmony. You see that in verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When you're reading through these verses, you notice that they're marked by relational benefit and joy and affection. Uh, For those of you who are careful observers of, of the mood, the language here, it's an indicative, it's not an imperative. Or to use our more prominent English categories. These are declarative sentences, not imperative sentences. He's not commanding them. He's not commanding them. He's telling them the way things are. These are the facts of life, or at least the facts of spiritual life. This is how it works. Everyone who has been born of God naturally loves the one who gave him life. You you see that right there in verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father... I mean, whoever's been born of God loves the Father. I mean, this is natural. You, you love the one that gave you life, right? I mean, who is it typically that gets the recognition on graduation day for having gotten the child through? It's mom. She was the physical imparter of life to that child. And because the child recognizes that she was the one who directly gave and sustained life, there's a natural love there. There's a natural affinity. And spiritually speaking, everyone born of God the Father loves him who gave and sustains their life. Now that's a given. If God was the one that gave you everything that you have, you naturally love him back. So based on the assumption that the born-again believer loves the one who birthed them, John also argues that they love all others who were born of them. Are you seeing the horizontal aspect? If you love God who gave you life, you also love the ones to whom he gave life. Um, The uh, the grammar geeks in the room really will appreciate the fact that in the original language, John is explicitly emphasizing the source or origin. I like the King James translation of this because it uses that word begotten. Remember that word like in John 3.16? John uses the same word here. He uses it three times. I could say it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been begotten of God, and everyone who loves him that begot also loves him that has been begotten of him. That's really the way it reads. The word Father is not in the text. It is the one who begot, the one who gave life. The argument is clear. He contends that if you, as one who has been produced by God, love God who is the producer, you will also love those who have been produced by him. I would illustrate it this way. If you love the source, you also love that which it produces. I like apples. And I also like apple pies and apple fritters, especially the ones at Trackside Donuts. They didn't pay me to say that, but they're the best ones I've ever had. I like applesauce. I like apple jacks. I don't know if they're real apples. But obviously, I like the source. I like the apple. Of course, you would expect me to like the things that are produced from it. We, here, John is assuming that we all share in the same divine life. We share in the divine DNA, if you will. And the concrete reality is if we love God, the source, we love everything that comes from him, and that is his people as well. But listen, blood may be thicker than water, but spiritual life must be thicker still. Nothing beats the bonds of common spiritual life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic work, Life Together, said it this way. This is fascinating. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Do you hear what he's saying there? Sometimes we think, oh man, we just need to we need to really work on our family environment. We need to be, try to be more loving, we need to try to be more caring. We need to try to treat each other like brothers and sisters and Bonhoeffer says, No, 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 no. You need to understand something. You already are. You already share common life in Jesus. And once you realize that, then you will begin to live out the love toward one another that God has commanded of you. But here there are no commands. These are just simple claims. And we know this to be true in our own experience. How many of you have ever said of a brother or sister in Christ, and he's, he's closer to me than my own blood brother. Or she's like a sister to me. And listen, let's be real. We know that siblings fight and get on each other's nerves, but let someone come to harm them and see what happens. I still remember, I think I was in sixth grade, and I hadn't really even like, hit any type of a growth spurt yet. Uh, beyond, I got the awkwardness before I got the height. And my brother was in the fourth grade at the time. And I remember hearing this story like after chapel at the Christian school we were in that some kid named, well, I won't say his name. He's probably like, some kid threatened to beat up my brother. Now, I beat up my brother all the time. (laughs) But I didn't want him beating him up. (laughs) And again, just to be clear, I didn't like, you know how brothers and sisters fight. Like I would always like hit him in the back or in the chest or something. I would never hit him in the face even though it did happen one time. But as soon as that something welled up within me, and, it, and it's just a common instinct that we have for those that we love. And, and what I want you to understand is that just as that is natural for the human relationship, so also it is natural for the spiritual relationship. There is a concern, a care, a love, an affection that has already been established on behalf of what Christ has done for us in placing us in God's family it's already there. This is a benefit. Horizontally speaking, you are already as close as can possibly be to one another. Having established this principle of the relationship, John now practically portrays it in verse 2. And the question for us as we come to the text is, what does this relational harmony actually look like? What are some indications of said relational harmony. Well, look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, John just did something very unique there. Again, don't let your mind just reject words on you. What did he do unique? Do you see it? Typically, he's concerned to show us how we can know if we love God but here, what does he do? He gives us evidence that we love whom? The children of God. He's taking time to show us if we how we can know, he wants us to be sure of that we're clear on what it looks like to love the children of God. And, and he gives us a rather confusing explanation at first because he says, All right, if you really want to know, if you're loving the children of God, here's the first thing. Are you ready for it? It'll blow your mind. Love God. <laughs> you're like, mmm. I'm not kidding. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the rules of logic, this is called circular reasoning. Circular reasoning goes this way. A is true because B is true, and B is true because A is true, right? Well, here, John just said, I mean, he's been saying all through the epistle, if you love God, you're going to love your brother. And here he says, if you love your brother, you're going to love God. Do you think he knows? Do you think he's aware of the logical fallacy that he's placed in the text? Of course he is. What he's showing us through this is that loving God and loving other believers are so interconnected that to speak of the one is to speak of the other. At first, the argument seems fiercely circular, but this seemingly circular argument highlights the integral and interdependent relationship between us and God and his children. I would only illustrate it this way at Christmas time. You bless me or my wife at Christmas, you've also in turn blessed our children. You bless our children at Christmas, you in turn have blessed us. Right? You, you, you can't divide up the family benefit. To show the love and care and expression of support to one is to show the love and care and support and benefit of the other. And he's saying, like, all right, remember, this is all wrapped up in one another. But this isn't just a circular argument. John eventually breaks his way out of that loop into some new territory. It goes somewhere. John slips in at the end here, a unique, concrete, objective indication of this relational harmony. And notice what he says. It's not just loving God, but it's also obeying God's commandments. You want to know if you're loving other people? You want to know what that looks like practically it looks like you doing what God says. We are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are obeying God's command. Sometimes it's easy for us to divorce obedience to God from affection to others. And John says, no, they're the same. When you're doing what God tells you to do, you are actually the most loving toward the people around you. Because there's this relationship. When you're doing what God wants, it's actually best for those around Paul explains this or unpacks this connection in Romans thirteen eight through 10. Just listen to it. He says, Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, right, love fulfills the law. Now, notice what he does here. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So notice what he's saying. Love for neighbors, not just love for God, is expressed in his commands. When you do what God says, you're showing love to other people. The simplest, most practical expression of love for God's people is our obedience to God's commands. D.A. Carson, in his book, Christ and Culture, states it negatively this way. He says, Sin is social. Although it is first and foremost defiance of God, there is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. Even secret sins of the heart and mind adversely affect others, since by subtly changing me, they change my relationship with others. And then he gives this illustration. And look, hang with me, because this is very important. When you break God's law, it isn't just between you and him. It also harms your relationship with others. Let's just take as an example, I'm not preaching on this today, but let me give you an example of sexual sin. If someone commits fornication or has premarital sex outside the bonds of marriage, while they have sinned against God in a way and sinned against that other person, they've also sinned against their future spouse, breeding a level of distrust in that relationship that never would have been there if they would have reserved themselves for the marriage night. Or the same thing in like, pornography. Pornography isn't just a sin that a man commits between him and God, but it is a sin that actually infects the entire marriage relationship, thereby actually handicapping the intimacy that the husband and wife should have enjoyed together. Now he's given that to Another. And his expectations have a hard time being fulfilled, all because he has indulged in some sin that not only has offended God, but has in turn offended his wife. Sin is not personal. Sin is not just between us and God. It is social. And so I would add that if sin is social, so is obedience. If sin against God ruins our relationships, that was the negative example, obedience to God repairs our relationships. The more we obey God, the better our relationships are. God's commands practically chart out what's best for His world and all that live in it. Uh, You take the... The couple that actually abstains from sexual relationship before marriage, their marriage is the stronger for it. You take the guy that avoids the pornography through those tough years of marriage, and guess what? Their relationship is the better for it. You take a couple who both withstand the constant onslaught and temptation of adultery, and their relationship is the better for it. God just didn't create some arbitrary rules that say, here, go follow these things. He designed his world and his laws so that we could thrive in it. Our own laws aspire to do what's best for our world. I mean, if you think about a speed limit law, for example, I know some of you could think, I wish I lived in Germany on the Autobahn and I could go as fast as I want to. Well, look at some of the wrecks on the Autobahn. (laughs) The speed limit laws are in place not to ruin your day or to make you late for your next appointment. They're there to protect the person around you. Or some people get frustrated with the texting and driving law, which probably 95% of you break regularly, self-included. But in that, isn't just like, you know what? We really want their car ride to be miserable. So we're going to tell them that they shouldn't be looking at their phone and driving at the same time. No, it's because your chances of an accident increase tenfold when you're doing that. It isn't just for your own good, it's also for the good of others. And if we can trust non-Christian people to impose laws upon us for our good individually and our good interpersonally, how much more could we give God the benefit of the doubt that his laws also benefit us individually and interpersonally? Does that make sense? And so John says, you're loving other people when you just simply do what God says do. So you want to show love? We've talked about it for five weeks. You want to know what it looks like to love God? You want to get really practical for a moment? Just three really simple instructions. Read, obey, repeat. Read the Bible, obey the Bible, repeat, and do it all over again. Just do what he's commanded in his word. Obedience to God and affection for others is one and the same. And this is the individual commands. I mean, you're showing love to us as you are a man or a woman of God. When you love God with your time and your talents and your resources, that is good for those around you. But there's a second aspect of the law that I think John has in mind here even more concretely. It isn't just the first table of the law, commands 1 through 4, that deal directly with our relationship with God, but it's also commands 5 through 10 that deal with our relationship with one another. There is so much practical instruction commanded on how we treat one another in this Bible. If you look in just the New Testament alone, there are 40, over 40, some people count up to 60, commands that end with the phrase, one another. Now, I want to read just a few. I'm going to read them quickly. I'm not going to dwell on them. I'm just going to read them. And you want to see what practical love looks like? Maybe you could jot down a couple of these that you don't see happening currently. And be sure to go back and put a name with it too cuz you can't do these without an object. <laughs> they need somewhere to go. Listen to some of these. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12:10. Stop passing judgment on one another, Romans 14:13. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Romans 16:16. 16, 16. Yes, I did put that one in there. In our cultural context, that would mean like show physical affection to other people, not necessarily kissing them, but shaking their hand or giving them a hug. Serve one another in love, Galatians 5.13. Do not provoke or envy one another, Galatians 5.26. Bear each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Forgive each other, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4.32. Sing hymns and spiritual songs to one another, Ephesians 5.19. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Consider each other better than yourselves, Philippians 2.3. Teach and admonish one another, Colossians 3.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, James 5.16. You see all these things? These commands are our opportunity to live out this relational harmony that God has given us. I mean, like you really want to just review some one another commands. You're like, how could I love my neighbor more this week? And some people start thinking like Hallmark cards and Christmas presents. And while that may be an expression of one of these things, there's something even more practical than that. It could just be encourage somebody, actually call them, ask them how they're doing and mean it, and then say that you're going to pray for them. It could be submitting to one another. Like somebody wants you to do something that's non-sinful, and you do it. That's showing love. It could be teaching one another. Like actually getting together to read the Bible with someone else. Like that is an that is expression of love. And this is the relationship that we're in. Read, obey, repeat. That's how we show love to one another. But I want you to know that the obedience here isn't all legalist. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, John reminds us that the born again, they show love to God via obedience. We got that. But here's the special thing. The commands that we do, whatever it is that God places on us, whatever is clearly revealed in his word that we should do, it's not burdensome to us. The, the, The literal word here is heavy or painful. You know the picture that came to mind as, as I was doing a word study? Was moving a piano. Has anybody ever had that misfortune? It's the worst. It's just the worst. Please do not call me and ask me to move a piano at your house. I no, just kidding. I will do it out of love. But the reason why moving a piano is just the pits is because it's heavy and it's painful and you get your toes smashed because you just can't get a handle on this thing. There is no good way to hold that. It wasn't made for that. They should have just built them in place. I think that would be the best way to do pianos. Actually, in fact, if you look on Craigslist, you can find pianos all over the place because everybody's trying to get rid of them, but you have to move it. That's the way that the unregenerate, the non-believer treats the commands of God. It's like a piano. I don't want to do that. I mean, I guess I'd do it if I have to. That's painful. I'm not good at that. Why why should I have to go to church? Read my Bible, really? Throw my back out, read my Bible? I'm busy. I mean, like, that's the attitude of the unregenerate. But the born again, they're in this this love relationship, this relational harmony that says, you know what? Encourage my brother or sister in Christ. Absolutely, I love to do that. Uh, come to church and provoke other believers to godliness? Yes, I'm there. Sign me up. Uh, Call someone through the week and, and pray with them? Absolutely. Yes, sir. I am in on that. Something has changed in us because we've been born again, because we believe Jesus is who he says he is. It's made us different and it's changed our attitude toward his law. It isn't something that's burdensome. It's something that's good. If you ever read Psalm 119, David illustrates this perfectly, where he takes the longest chapter in the Bible and devotes every subsection of it to it, listen to this, to the law of God. So often we read Psalm 119, for those of you who have been in the faith a while, and you're like, oh, he's talking about the Bible. No, he's not, well, I mean, kind of talking about the Bible, but he's specifically using eight different words all throughout Psalm 119 to describe his love for God's commandments. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, could you imagine someone like here in Naples, like over at Artis, like composing a symphony in honor of our local traffic code? I don't think that's going to be a heavy hitter. (laughs) It's just not doing well at the box office. And yet David is so in love with the commands of God, they're so sweet to him, they're so precious, that he writes the longest chapter of the Bible in devotion to their honor. That's the kind of heart we've been given now. Because we recognize how good these commands are. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, the life of God within makes obedience to the commands possible. And the love with which the Christian has for God and other Christians makes this obedience desirable. New birth made it possible. And new love made it desirable. So do you see this first immense benefit of being born again? It is relational harmony. As born-again believers, we benefit from relational harmony. The second benefit of being born again is listed in verses 4 and 5. As a born-again believer, you benefit also from spiritual victory. Spiritual victory. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, what John's doing here, he's, he's actually explaining why God's commands are no longer heavy. If you look at the beginning of verse 4, you see the word for. That's an explanation. So he just said, God's commands are not heavy. And here's why. Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, he's returning to the main subject. Again, the main subject here is the person who's been born of God. It's in the indicative mood again. He's stating the facts. Here's the truth. Those who have been born again, past tense or technically perfect tense, are presently overcoming the world. So if you, at some point in the past, were given new spiritual life, one of the things that will be true in the present, like the ongoing, like day-to-day, right now, is that you will be overcoming the world. Well, this could sound familiar, this overcoming language could sound familiar to 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14, or 1 John 4, verse 4. Remember, we've heard this before, and you think, oh, we've already got this. No, he does something different here. John has yet to use the word overcome in the present tense. He has talked about us having overcome in the past. When we were initially saved, we overcame the clutches of the world, if you will. But there is a sense in which it is not just a past tense event, but it is presently continuing. I mean, the truth is, even though Satan no longer has a claim on the believer... We still live in his domain, a.k.a. the world. We still live there. But nevertheless, even though we live in his domain, God's children still overcome, which exposes an amazing theological truth. John reminds us not just that we have overcome, but that we are overcoming, and this accords with the early church father Augustine's fourfold state of man. Maybe you've heard this before. Augustine says that that mankind, as you trace out his history, has existed in four different ways. The first one was in the garden before the fall. Adam and Eve, they at that point had the ability to sin or not to sin. That was stage number one. Ability to sin or not to sin. But once sin was introduced, mankind was plunged into spiritual captivity, leading to the second state of man, which was not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. What? Positively, we couldn't help but sin. Sin was the only thing we could do. Sin had messed us up that badly. That's what the curse did. But then, after thousands of years, Jesus came. He entered into the human state prevailed over the curse of the second state by living righteously in the power of the Spirit and paying the death penalty for all who rebelled against God's law. And just as his crucifixion satisfied the penalty of death, so also his resurrection secured the power of life for all who would believe. And thereby Jesus' death, life, and resurrection made possible the third state of man, which is this, able not to sin. Able not to sin. That was never true of you until the power of what Jesus did was applied to your life. You were stuck. You were not able not to sin. And yet now, he says, you are able. You finally have the ability to not sin. And the fourth state will be when we see Jesus when we are not able to sin. One day, even the ability to sin will be taken away. First John 3, 2 speaks to that. But for right now, John wants you to get, you're in the third state. Born-again believers now live in the third state of man. We can still sin, but we're finally able to resist. Now that we have this capacity, God's children regularly overcome the world. The word overcome is interesting. In the apostles' day, victory or overcoming just so happened to be the name of a goddess. Her name was Nike, which we pronounce Nike. Nike. So you have the Greek city of Nicopolis. It's called the city of victory. Named in honor of Caesar Augustus' victory in battle over the armies of Antony and Cleopatra. And the Roman world in particular lived for victory, glorified in its world domination. So what you have here in verses 4 and 5, that very word, niki, nikao, in both its noun and verb form, shows up here four times. Now, our English words switch it up because we get bored with the same word. So we say overcome, and then we say victory, and then we say overcome. John is actually intentionally repeating himself. He says, verb-wise, you are victorious over the enemy. You have overcome an adversary. You win at the contest, or as a noun, you are a victor, an overcomer, a winner. The born-again, they don't try to overcome the world. They don't hope to overcome the world. They don't sometimes overcome the world. It is their regular practice. They are winners. They are champions. They are the opposite of whatever you think a loser is. God's people are victorious. You're saying, Justin, that doesn't line up with my experience. Because even though I believe in Jesus and I think that I've been born again, I don't know that I have a winning record I think I may be on the losing end of things. Friends, once you understand what the world really is, you're going to see that you enjoy more victory than you even know. If he's saying here that you, as a believer, are going to have victory over the world, well, you need to be clear first on what the world is. The world has been used throughout John's writings to refer to the human race. God so loved the world, so that means all people. To the human realm, Jesus came into the world. So, world could be the realm that we live in, but it also is used in a third way: the human rebellion. That's what's here. When, like Jesus says, uh, John says of Jesus, the world did not receive him. He's talking about human rebellion rejected him. Here, he's talking about. The human rebellion, the system of organized opposition to God and his people expressed via temptation and persecution and corruption. The world is just such a, a tough one for us. And I've, I've joked around in times past, Like we typically too narrowly define world. We, the world. We, we limit it to a, a genre of music or a particular movie rating. And yet what he says is that it is so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. Again, Carson defines world. The sum of all the limited, transitory powers opposed to God which make obedience difficult. Sometimes these are moral pressures, the outlook, standards, and preoccupations of a godless, secular society, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he does. Sometimes they are intellectual, such as heresy, and sometimes they are physical, they are persecution. When we're talking about the world, friends, we're talking about something that expresses itself in three ways. Morally, intellectually, physically. Morally, the world is that pressure that you feel to disobey God. It's the materialism that is advanced to you via commercials and ads. It's the the sensuality that you're surrounded by through pornography and fashion and the popular narratives of most of the movies that are produced today. It's something moral. It's a moral pressure, a moral peer pressure, if you will. But there is also an intellectual component. Worldliness is comprised of the pressure to disobey God and the way that we think. It's anti-God, anti-Christ, antinomian thinking from the elementary classroom all the way up to the university and everything in between. I mean, have you ever noticed that in the typical educational institution, Jesus isn't a priority? Because Satan owns this world system. I'm grateful for all the educators who are in that and pushing back against it as believers but I think everyone in the system recognizes that they are fighting an uphill battle. That's the world. And there's physical physical pressure. We don't see it here in the West, but, man, it is happening in the East, and China is about to get nailed. It is anti-Christian policies and government powers. That's the world. Anything that would try to stop the spread of the gospel through persecution, that is a reality. So the world is all around us. The world is stacked against you and your relationship with and obedience to God. If you want to see this in Paul's letters, by the way, you simply look for these two words, the powers. Paul refers to the world often as the powers. And it reminds me of the gauntlet. Just this week, I was flying out on Tuesday morning, and I have started, me and Rob were going on a trip together, And there was this lady, she could have worked for the Western Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce. She really wanted me to go see her home state. And was giving me all the reasons why it was such a beautiful place to be. And so she told me particularly about all the Indian history that was around there. And she taught me something I never knew. She said that there's all these museums and one of them depicts the gauntlet. Uh, And I'm like, oh, I've heard of the gauntlet. That was in Infinity Wars, you know, the Marvel Comics movie. She's like, no, 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 the gauntlet, the the Indian gauntlet. Gauntlet isn't just a thing that you wear on your hand. The gauntlet was actually a disciplinary measure that was used in some military settings and in Indian culture to punish those who had gone against the grain, to punish those who had actually rebelled against the system. And so the idea was that you would have the faithful line up on both sides, just kind of like this aisle, and they would have all types of cudgels and sticks or whatever, and you would literally have to run the gauntlet while everybody is beating you (laughs) through this process. And to make it worse, there would be a guy in front of you with a sword to keep you from running through the gauntlet. So you had to walk it. You don't run it. (laughs) And you just get the mess beat out of you. And once you make it through the end, you're supposed to be totally remedied. Everything's good. Friends, the world is not happy that you've switched allegiances. You walk the gauntlet. They are not happy about the exclusivity of your belief. They're not happy about your claims to righteousness, especially from this dead Jew named Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago. I mean, none of this makes them happy. And they resist you and they beat against you with the intellectual institutions and with their own moral narratives and with everything that they can throw. They are not happy about what you believe. That is the world. And yet John says, you will overcome the world. You will take the beating and you will keep walking because you love the Father. His life is in you. It sustains you. It enables you. Do you stumble from time to time while running it? Absolutely. But you get up and you move forward and you progress day by day by day by day. You are overcomers, friends. And John says the only person who's not an overcomer is the one that quit. And if you have quit, First John chapter 2, you never really possessed his spirit in the first place. Some of you have beat yourself up. (laughs) And I would say, friends, as long as you're still facing the right direction and you're getting up and you're continuing to push back against the world that is constantly pushing against you, you are overcoming. Remember the old proverb? A righteous man falls seven times and what? Rises seven times. John has already made an allowance for failure. And that is the shed blood of Jesus. We continue to depend on him for it. But the faithful, the overcomers, they keep moving. We are now warriors against the world, dominators against the pressures of a secular society. And do you see what this means for you even this week? Through faith in Christ, get this please, through faith in Christ you will overcome materialism and greed by running a profitable and ethical business. You will overcome the ever-present temptations of your internet browser. You will overcome the negativity provoked by your family over the holidays. You will overcome the pride that is so inherent to your heart by keeping Christ first over athletics and academics and material success You will overcome the endless barrage of sexual temptations in your dating relationship. You will overcome the despondency and the antisocial tendencies that can come from failing health. You will overcome the intellectual peer pressure to abandon the truth of Jesus. You will overcome the nagging bitterness for that person who has sinned against you. And you will overcome the fear that hinders your advance of the gospel with lost friends and family. Friends, God's children do overcome. Victory over the world is the birthright of every born-again believer. Now hear me well. God's non-children do not enjoy this victory. They cannot overcome They cannot overcome the allure of the financial shortcut, the forbidden sexual concessions, the pride that repels them from family and friends, the idols of athletic, intellectual, or material success, the lies concerning the person of Christ and the gospel. So who are you today? Where do you stand? One commentator wrote, and I found this to be so helpful, Christians don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. See the difference between the two? The victory is already ours to enjoy. It's not something that we muster up. It's something that's already been given to us as we continue to depend on Christ. So once again, being born again benefits us with relational harmony and spiritual victory. If I were just to narrow the the thrust of this message down to a couple of words, I would say, that these benefits of the new birth are the difference between opportunity and obligation. If you've truly been born again, you've moved from obligation into opportunity. The have to to the get to. Examples. For me, having to drive to North Carolina for Christmas is an ought to. It's a have to. I don't like driving. I don't like driving at night. I don't like driving with five kids in a van. But i got to do it. But for the 90-year-old whose license has been taken away or for the 14-year-old longing to get behind the wheel of a car, any opportunity to drive is a get-to. I've prayed sympathetically for the new mothers in our midst. And I think of those midnight feedings. And they are indeed an ought to. You should be doing that. (laughs) But for the barren couple who've spent thousands of hours and dollars to no avail, a midnight feeding is a get-to. See the difference? This whole thing about loving other believers and fighting against the world isn't just an ought-to. There are no commands in this text. It's a get-to. It's your benefit. It's your birthright. It's your honor. It's your privilege. Because of what the Spirit has done for you, expressed through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so we've been born again, as evidenced by our belief in Christ. And so I must ask, have you truly believed in Him? It is still and ought to if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever really been convinced of the dreadfulness of your sin and the delightfulness of the Savior? Can you truly call Jesus the Christ, the King, the Ruler? Do you see Him as your only rescue from sin, your only ruler for all of life and eternity? Do you truly count on the fact that He is the Son of God who fully entered into humanity to reconcile you to God? If that's true of you. You can enjoy, you will enjoy, you do enjoy these benefits. And if you don't know, please, please talk to one of us. After the service, there is nothing better than believing in Christ. Dear brother or sister, my only question for you in closing is, are you taking advantage of these benefits? Are you viewing your obedience to God and love for brothers and sisters in Christ as an opportunity Or an obligation? Is there a practical opportunity for love that came to mind that you need to enact this week? Are you enjoying victory over the world through faith in Christ? Maybe you could ask, what spiritual battle could I most benefit from in faith-based victory? What's that thing that you feel like you've been succumbing to the pressure of the world, but if you would just remember that Jesus Christ has given you victory you could overcome this week? That's what the Lord wants from us this morning, to enjoy the benefits bestowed upon us through the new birth. Let's pray. Father, refresh us with your grace. Today, we haven't been reviewing the fact that we are born again. (laughs) We're reviewing the fact that there are positive, tangible benefits to being born again. And so many may have walked into this service ambivalent, despondent, discouraged. Lord, may we leave excited, encouraged, Lord, infused with divine energy to overcome the world, to show love to one another. This is not our obligation. It is our opportunity. It is our privilege. So may the word, Lord, change our minds, our hearts this week. Direct us to live for you to love you in faithful, concrete ways. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.